powerful, and he speaks to you now through it and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. If you don't happen to have a Bible, it's always useful as we study it together to have one open in front of you, and so you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in a seat back nearby you and turn to page 876 is where you'll find this morning's text. For the last 11 months, almost exactly, we have been slowly but surely walking our way through Luke's gospel. And today we come to the end of chapter 16. And if you have been following along with us, you might know that means we have now crossed the two-thirds uh, road all the way through Luke's gospel, which is the longest book in the entire New Testament. And more than you would realize, faster than you might realize, we are barreling forward to the final week of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Luke. But before we get there, this morning we have to give attention to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is found in verses 19 through 31. It's a story that many people, even commentators and scholars, don't think is a parable. But for our purposes this morning, I indeed think it is. And as I read the text in just a minute, students, I want you to see if you can take note of, in this parable, how many sets of two Jesus uses as he paints this picture for our attention this morning. So I want to read it, then I want to pray that God would bless our study of it, and then we will begin. So hear now, for God is speaking to you through his word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us is fixed a great chasm, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's Word? Let us bow in prayer together once again. Father, we do come to you now asking that you would make us people of faith and repentance, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that you would be glorified in our lives, that we would hear and heed even your warnings for us this morning. So give us hearts of faith, ears of eagerness, 
uh, minds of truth that we may understand what you have to say to us in this text. Give me a mouth that is purified, a mouth that is holy to proclaim your good tidings of salvation through judgment. Help me to preach as your Bible says I must. As a dying man unto dying people with clarity and boldness, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. He's one of the greatest evangelists of his time in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And he often throughout his ministry would host training schools for men and women to learn how to be eager and zealous evangelists. And at the end of those training schools, there would often be a commencement ceremony of sorts as these people and the individuals were commissioned to go out and share the good news in various areas there in Britain. And after or during one of these commencement ceremonies, Booth said to his now just graduated students, what would have actually been better for them than this 10-week course of evangelism training they just took was if he could take them by a rope and dangle them over hell for five minutes. Because hearing the shrieks of of torment there in the place of punishment, they would never need another course in evangelism. And this point is pretty simple, isn't it? If we would but know the horrors and the terrors of God's judgment upon sin, we would have sufficient motivation to speak of the good news of Jesus Christ, to warn people to flee the wrath to come. And you may have noticed along the way in Luke's gospel that Jesus Christ is not shy of saturating his teaching ministry with warnings. And one of his favorite weapons of warning to use against the self-righteous religious leaders of his time is parables that we've seen over and over. So kids, I hope you remember what a parable is. It's usually a simple story that's meant to tell a significant spiritual truth. It's kind of this earthly picture of a greater spiritual reality. And I think by his grace and intentionally to his audience, what Jesus is doing for us as we listen to him this morning is, as it were, taking us by a rope and dangling us over the place of torment. That awaits all those who do not close with Jesus Christ. And the question is for us, what will our response be as a result? And what we find here in our passage today is something of a close to this parabolic role that Jesus has been on for two whole chapters. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you find that the Pharisees were grumbling about Jesus' feasting with tax collectors and sinners associating with these spiritual lowlifes. So you'll see in verse 3 of chapter 15, Jesus utters one parable that we know as the chapter progresses from three different vantage points. You have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And as we spent two weeks in chapter 15, we notice that each one of those parables is making the same central point, that heaven bursts out in celebration when sinners repent. And yet, the Pharisees are grumbling in their self-righteousness. 
So we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples. And if you just scan your eyes to the verse 13 verses of chapter 16, the simple truth he was trying to get across to his disciples is found in verse 13. You cannot serve God in money. You must use your wealth righteously in light of looming eternity. And so what you'll notice is, and I think all of these teachings came across, across one day, what you get is the, is the Pharisees moving from kind of silently and somewhat remotely grumbling about Jesus to now just outright ridiculing him. Look at verse 14 of chapter 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now what Jesus does then, if you scan your eyes through the next few verses, is go on to talk about the ongoing power and necessity of God's law that the Pharisees were supposedly so zealous to uphold, yet they have fallen so far short. So what you have in chapter 16, think about it this way, as these two streams of truth coming to confront the Pharisees, this, this stream about you cannot serve God in money and you must obey God's law. And these two streams, what they're going to do is they're going to come together in this river of the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Because those are two essential components to what we see in this parable. And if you wanted to summarize our, our text this morning, you might simply say that Jesus warns against trusting in wealth. Or if you want to put a little bit more flesh on it, Jesus warns about what will happen to those who serve the God of gold. So students, did you notice the twos, the couplets, the pairs of truth throughout the passage? So we get two people who go to two places, then one of them makes two pleas, and he hears two pronouncements. And even as a whole, the passage has two distinct parts. Commentators have wondered if actually Luke took two disparate teachings, different teachings of Jesus, and smashed them together because they seem somewhat different according to these experts. But we, of course, are a rather simple spiritual people and think they belong together. And so we'll take them just in their parts. First, we're going to see a great reversal. And secondly, a great realization. A great reversal and a great realization. Look at verse 19, a great reversal. We're introduced, first of all, to a rich man. And as you look through, and we look through, verse 19... This is very much like an ancient equivalent of lifestyles of the rich and the famous. Because kids, look at verse 19. What color are his clothes? Purple. Purple is the color of kingship and royalty. A person who wore purple clothing every day was among the privileged and prominent few. Not just wearing purple clothes every day. If you look through the verses, it continues. It says he had fine linen which actually, believe it or not, is a more technical term for undergarments. And Jesus is telling us that he was abundantly rich on his clothing, inside and out. And not only is his wardrobe extravagant, so is his daily diet. Because look at how the verse ends in 19. He feasted sumptuously every day. So we saw at the end of chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal son, this great celebration. The father says, kill the fattened calf for my son who is lost has, has now been found. He who is dead is now alive. And here we have a rich man essentially having a diet of fattened calf every single day. 
It's, it's a portrait of lavish luxury in that first century context. And you may know that there was nothing in that context of like a middle class we have in our context. There was this great divide within society. You were either poor or rich, patrician or publican, slave or free. So the second major character in this parable is on the opposite end of the spectrum of wealth. Look at verse 20 and 21. At the rich man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we're meant to see the contrast here. Uh, That phrase, was laid, it's a passive phrase. It seems to be that this man, Lazarus, is crippled. He can't get himself to the rich man's gate. It even could be translated, he was thrown, or he was cast. It has this image of this poor man named Lazarus just being cast aside at the rich man's gate because he needs food. There were no social relief programs in Israel at that time, and so any poor person needed the generosity of a wealthy person if he or she was to receive food. And and the great depths of this man's woe is seen in the fact that he is being licked by dogs. These sores that cover his body, thereby making him unclean so he couldn't go into the temple to worship. But interestingly enough, in the literary fashion of Jesus in this moment, what Jesus is essentially doing for our attention is painting a picture of a beggar who's nothing more than a dog. Why? Just as dogs, you might have this even in your home, gather around a table during mealtime waiting for scraps to fall from it, so you have Lazarus waiting for scraps to fall from the rich man's table. It's meant to show us this great contrast. One of these men is in a house of security. We might even say a palace of security. The other is on the bench of misery. One is at the seat of luxury. The other is on the doorstep of misery. And if we're going to understand why Jesus is using the parable in this way, you need to know something about how the Pharisees at the time thought about money in its relationship to a person's spiritual health. Pharisees were something like first century prosperity gospel preachers. Their understanding of wealth was that if you were wealthy, it was a sign of God's favor and pleasure upon you. It was a sign that you were doing things right. And if you were poor, it was probably a sign of your cursing. It was probably a sign of your disobedience. It's why you could even read in a section of the Talmud, this Jewish document. It says there are three things that show there is no life among the living. In other words, there are three things that show a man's cursing. Number one, he begs for food. Number two, his wife rules over him. Number three, he has a body of sores. Now what does Jesus say? We don't know anything about Lazarus' marriage. But he is begging for food. He is full of sores. This is a picture of cursing. This is a picture in the Pharisee's mind of someone who was depraved. And what you want to see then, though, is that Jesus is going to completely reverse their understanding of theological wealth, of what wealth communicates about a person's heart. Because the Pharisees thought that wealth was a sign of spiritual health, that poverty was a sign of depravity, but look at what we find out in the great reversal in verse 22 through 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, 
And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Lazarus, I'm sorry, saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, stick with me for just a minute. I want to make a couple of theological comments and then we'll get back to what really I think Jesus is after here. Because there are two questions that people often have about these verses. What's the deal with Abraham's side? What's Abraham doing in this passage? What's the prominence of Abraham here? And then what about this idea of Hades? Well, what you need to know is Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience so that he's using Jewish understandings of the afterlife in this parable. Who was the patriarchal father of the Jews? Abraham. Even in time, Abraham's side became something of shorthand for eternal blessedness. And here is Lazarus at Abraham's side. And a Jewish understanding of the afterlife was something like in Hades, it's this place of the dead, and there were something like two areas, the place of cursing and the place of blessing. It's like a holding pattern for the life to come. And it seems like Jesus is picking up on that, and I think in light of the New Testament, what Jesus is referencing here by way of Hades is something we ought to refer to as the intermediate state. It's a place where those who are apart from Christ are enduring great pain in wrath. It's a place of God's children enjoying comfort and blessing, but it's not in its full final state. And I don't really think this parable is a place that we ought to build great fine lines of theological points on what the afterlife looks like because Jesus is simply painting in broad strokes. You are going to die, and you're going to go to one of two places. And we'll find out in just a minute more about the nature of those two places. But parents, I want to even encourage you here, especially if you have younger children, I hope you're doing the hard work of reminding them that death is a reality. I think we've lost something in our culture when cemeteries were removed from churches. That we no longer have this clear depiction every week before our eyes that death is coming if Jesus doesn't return. We're always only, aren't we, a heartbeat away from death. If you were to die today, Will the angels, like with Lazarus, be your escort to heaven? Or like this rich man, are you going to be laid in the grave of misery? For misery is, of course, what he gets. A couple of years ago, there was a fiasco of sorts in the largest Presbyterian church in our country as they were putting together their latest edition of their hymn book. And it came out early on in that publication process that they had made a decision not to include a hymn we just sang a few minutes ago, In Christ Alone. And the reason is because there's a particular line in verse 2 of that hymn that they didn't like. It's the line that says, Till on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And this denomination had contacted the hymn writers, because they're still alive, and said, Hey, can we change that line to say, Till on the cross that Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the writer said no. And so they yanked it out of the hymn book. And don't you know that many Christians today would rather delete than declare the truth about God's wrath upon sin? Many churches, sadly, would rather forget it and forsake it than focus on it in the unwavering fashion that Jesus does. And Jesus is so unrelenting in his warnings, I want you to see this because he loves you enough to warn you. Just as a parent loves a child enough to warn them. Because what is the word? Kids, look again. Students, look again at verse 23. What's the word Jesus uses to describe the rich man's condition when he dies? 
It's torment. He doesn't use discomfort. He doesn't say it's a pain that he's suffering, distress that he's going through. What does he say? Torment. Unending torment. It's meant to be not just a warning for us this morning, but a solemn and sobering one as well. Because go on to verse 24, and look at how even this man himself, the rich man, describes his condition. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And I want you to notice the two names that he uses. The rich man calls on two people, essentially. First, Father Abraham. So it reminds us, this is a Jewish context. This man would have understood himself to be something of a devout Jew. And throughout Jesus' ministry, one of his most consistent warnings is against the Pharisees resting upon their Jewish heritage for salvation. You can find it all the way back in John the Baptist's ministry as it began in Luke chapter 3 as he's preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. He tells these snakes and these brood of vipers named the Pharisees. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and don't you even say to me, well, we have Abraham as our father. What a warning it is, maybe even for some of us in the room today, that physical kinship to God's family is meaningless without a genuine spiritual relationship with God. How many Christians, even in our country, might today come to the end of all things and say, well, I was a member of a local church. I went to all the camps and the retreats. I came to all the special holiday services. I had this kinship relationship with God family, God's family. And he may yet say, depart from me. I don't know you because there was no repentance and faith. He uses the language, doesn't he, of I am in anguish in this flame. But to understand the rich man's heart, do you see the second name he uses in that verse? Not just Father Abraham, but he calls on Lazarus. So it seems like it's quite clearly true that he knew Lazarus was on his doorstep begging for food every day and did nothing about it. And how far gone was he and is he in his self-centeredness? What does he want Lazarus to do? Relieve his anguish. He who would never relieve Lazarus' anguish while on earth now wants Lazarus to relieve his anguish for eternity. A great reversal has taken place, hasn't it? He who was rich is now a beggar. He who was a beggar is now rich in the presence of God. Jesus is overturning all expectation regarding wealth and poverty in that first century context. It indeed is a great reversal. Christmas, as you know, is on the way, and so I imagine some of your family traditions might include reading or watching an adaptation of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. And you know, the central character is that curmudgeon named Ebenezer Scrooge, and somewhere along the way in the story, the ghost of Christmas past takes Scrooge back through his past to show that his actions in the past is why, are why, he is where he is now. And it's Jesus telling us in parabolic form that Abraham does the same thing with the rich man. Look at verse 25 through 26. Child, remember, 
You in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Again, I don't think this is the place where we want to build this full theological system of the afterlife, because I'm not so sure that Jesus is meaning to tell us that there is a literal great chasm between heaven and hell. Maybe there is. He is certainly saying, however, that one's eternal state is fixed and final. There is no transferring from one to the other. And in the course of the context of this passage, the warning is against those who love their wealth, who trust in it for all their deepest joys, hopes, and happiness. And what he is saying is you must repent of your love for the God of gold. Otherwise, your state is as fixed and final as this rich man in fire, agony, and torment. Of course, the good news is found in that great word, isn't it, in verse 25? Lazarus is comforted here. That if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, it's not torment and agony that awaits you, but comfort forever. There's a great reversal in this passage, and it leads to a great realization Look at verse 27. The rich man is kind of at the end of pleading for his own case. What he says in verse 27 is this, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Many people who think lightly of preaching today think much of preaching on the other side of eternity. It's not that big of a deal now, but then there will be a realization one day that it does mean everything for our life in Christ, insofar as the Bible tells us it's through the preaching of a crucified king that faith comes to God's people. Help me out is what this rich man is saying to Abraham, but look at Abraham's response in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets Let them hear them. Well, he ups his eagerness, doesn't he, in verse 30. Rich man says, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham is still certain, isn't he? Look at verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So two great things you need to realize from this quick interchange. One is the futility of signs. The futility of signs. This man is saying, now send someone back from the dead. This miraculous sign of resurrection, it's going to be enough to convince them not to come here. And Abraham says, no, it won't. They have enough already in Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. They don't need anything else. And I wonder if you might be in here today looking for some sense of a powerful, miraculous sign to elicit new faith or fresh faith in your own life. What Jesus is telling us here is that the demand for signs is always one that will be futile. Could you be looking for a sign to tip the scales of unbelief towards belief. And Jesus says, it won't happen. But what he says, secondly, the thing you need to realize, not just the futility of signs, but the sufficiency of Scripture. Because what does he say is enough? The Old Testament. 
You know, there's a very popular and extremely influential preacher in America right now going about these events promoting his latest book, which surely will be a bestseller because they always seem to be this way. And what he is exhorting Christians unto in our 21st century, increasingly secular context, is to unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. Because what we need is a resurrected Christ, not everything we find in the Old Testament. And it flies exactly in the face, doesn't it, of what we find in Luke 16. For what Jesus is saying is the Old Testament is sufficient to bring someone to repentance that leads to salvation. It's the exact same language that Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He's telling Timothy, devote yourself to these God-inspired scriptures because they are able to make you wise unto salvation. I wonder how much you know of your Old Testament. Do you love it as much as your New Testament? Do you even understand what Jesus is doing in this case he's presenting against the Pharisees? Because it's as though in chapter 16 he's presenting this unassailable mountain of evidence of their actual unbelief and unrepentance. Because what he's saying in verse 1 through 13 essentially is they love God. I'm sorry, they love money more than God. They don't use their money for eternal purposes. They're the ones in verse 15 who exalt themselves. They not only want riches, they want recognition. They don't even obey the law. They supposedly are so zealous to uphold. And not only that, they're the ones that are trusting in their wealth to lead them to a place in heaven, a reserved seat in heaven. And Jesus is warning them that anyone who trusts in money, the God of gold, faces an eternity of torment. And interestingly enough, those Pharisees, in the life and ministry of Jesus, we're about to get the sign of resurrection. You can turn to that passage later on today in John chapter 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life, because who is he raised from the dead? Children, you remember this? A man named Lazarus. And what do the Pharisees do? Do they repent? No. It becomes the occasion for them in John's gospel to begin plotting the murder of Jesus Christ. It's as though Jesus at the end of this passage could sit down and slam down the gavel and say case closed against these self-righteous spiritual leaders. He's warning us against trusting in our wealth. Yesterday I was out at the soccer field coaching our five-year-old's soccer game about one o'clock in the afternoon and it was a windy day. 20, 25 mile an hour wind. And if you've ever coached, you know, a soccer game outside with younger children, you know that pretty much the full experience of your coaching work is yelling at children. (laughs) Especially when it's as windy as it is and we're on the sideline where the wind was in my face because what's often happening as the game goes on, I'm trying to get one of the the players, hey, you know, you're going to take the goal kick or the corner kick and the throw-in, so I'm shouting out, you know, a name. So even Haddon, my son, yesterday for the goal kicks, Haddon, 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 you know, five or six times about every time I need a child's attention. Eventually may stretch to seven or eight, and of course by the time I actually get them to turn around and look at me, the play is passed and it's beyond all hope <laughs> for any sort of real change and involvement. And Jesus is saying, he does this in every passage he speaks to us, but maybe uniquely so this morning. He's lifting up his voice that we might listen, warning us that there is a time coming when people will listen, but it's going to be too late. Just like the rich man in this parable. So lest we don't hear it as we ought, 
and we miss it, and here too late, let me give you just three simple summary statements that you need to hear at the end of this passage. First, you need to hear once again the centrality of repentance. Because look again at verse 30. The rich man knows something here. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will what? Repent. He knows, and as we've seen over and over in Luke's gospel, this is the central right response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's repenting. But I do think the rich man's understanding of repentance was somewhat misguided. Because if you just kind of read through the lines of what he's saying in this passage, it seems as though he wants someone to go warn his brothers to repent so they'd be spared from the consequences of their actions. Not so much the true biblical understanding of repentance, which means a changed life. Because students, don't forget, repentance has this connotation. It's a changed mind that leads to a changed heart that shows itself with a changed life. You need to hear again the centrality of repentance. And one of the simplest ways in Jesus' instructions that you can see fruits of that repentance is look at their pocketbook. Which leads to the second thing you need to hear. Use your riches in light of eternity. Use your wealth in light of eternity. We've already seen Jesus do this in Luke chapter 12. He essentially says, how do you want to see what a person believes about eternity. Look what they do with their money. If they're living for life here, it's always going to terminate here. If they're living for eternity with hearts of faith and repentance, the money is used for the kingdom because where their treasure is, there is their heart. And I genuinely think that in our American context today, we've, we've missed how how strong Jesus warns us against wealth. That it cultivates in our spirit a self-sufficiency. Who needs God? As I was just talking with a brother after Sunday school earlier this morning, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But we know we're going to have bread on the table tomorrow, don't we? Because God has blessed us with incredible wealth. So what then looks like fruits of repentance in many of our lives, most immediately from this passage, is how we use our money. People who serve God use their money to serve God. People who serve the God of gold use their money on themselves. So see the centrality, hear the centrality of repentance, hear the urge to use your riches in light of eternity, and thirdly and finally, uh, I want you to respond to Christ's word of mercy. You know, you might even have tracked along with the passage appropriately enough and looked at verse 24 as the rich man says, have mercy on me, and noticed he gets no mercy. So you might say, okay, Stone, where's the mercy of Christ in this passage? Now here's the great irony. Jesus is good at irony. He says to the rich man, your brothers will not get a warning or someone resurrected. Do you know that in the preaching of the scriptures this morning, he's given you a warning to look to the resurrected king? You get what the rich man was longing for his family to hear? Because of course when we come into God's presence and preach Christ from scriptures, we preach a king that not only was crucified, but that was buried, and that he rose again. And understand who this resurrected king is in light of the shades of this parable. 
He is the richest man in the universe who became nothing so you might receive everything. He became poor that you might become rich. If by faith and repentance you lay yourself on the doorstep of his gates, you will find him coming for you. You may even find him now laying you at those very gates, just like these friends laid the crippled Lazarus there. For are we not spiritually in our own hearts all beggars before the Lord? It's fascinating to me that in the course of Jesus' parables, there's only one key character that gets named, at least as the parables are introduced, and it's this man, Lazarus. His name means God helps. And do you notice that Lazarus doesn't say anything in the course of any of these verses? It's a picture of God's sovereign grace toward weak, weary, sinful beggars like you and me. This rich man wouldn't do anything for the beggar, but we proclaim a resurrected king, the richest man who gives everything for beggars like you and me. Have you heard his warning? Have you heard the good news of his mercy? Let's pray together. My Father, we are indeed grateful that you are God full of mercy and grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Build us up, we pray now, by your spirit to be a people who walk righteously with our riches, who long not for the world's recognition but cling alone to our resurrected King, Jesus Christ, who shows his great mercy for us in loving us enough to warn us away from the death and judgment that awaits any who serve wealth instead of you. Help us, we pray, to love you and to serve you this week with our hearts, souls, and minds. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.